Books are harder to push down than I anticipated. Uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We are in the book of Titus, so if you have your Bible along, you can open that up. We're going to be in, in Titus chapter 1 and 5 to 6. We only got through four verses last time. We're going to get a little bit farther today. We had a little bit of a background last time. The gist of where we were last time was that uh, Paul is writing this letter to Titus, and I'll give you a little, a little bit behind it. So Paul worked with Titus a number of different times, and for the most part, uh, uh, for the most part, he was kind of a, a, a key guy for difficult situations. If they had to gather money, they sent, uh, Titus was one of the ones that did it. They did this travel, they're going around, to, and they ended up at this island of Crete. This is, I think, during Paul's third missionary journey. They ended the island of Crete, and the island of Crete is actually pretty big. So I looked it up, and I think I might even said it's off the coast of Italy last time. I was thinking of Sicily. That was totally wrong. It's off, uh, it's by Greece. Like, Italy looks like a boot, and Greece looks like a mangled hand. That's what it looks like. So off the coast of Greece, and it's about the same side as Puerto Rico. So if you've ever been to Puerto Rico, that's about 3,500 square miles, and Crete, <coughs> excuse me, is about 3,200 square miles. So it's bigger. I was hoping it would be like the size of Douglas County. It's not. It's It's bigger. Douglas County is 800 square miles, so it's quite a bit bigger, five, four times bigger than uh, Douglas County. So when you think about it, this is a fairly lengthful spot. So what had happened was Paul went, I'm going to shut this off and cough, went around with, on this missionary journey, and they started to establish what we call house churches. So as they traveled around to some of these cities or the port cities, in Crete, they would establish a house church. So they'd go to someone's house, they would start proclaiming the gospel, or he'd be, um, they probably didn't have many synagogues then because this is non-Jewish area, and they would proclaim it, and then people would say, wow, this is really good. And they started these kind of pockets of believers. And so Paul, is he, he feels guilty about this. He hasn't been back. He had to go to prison, and he said, you know what, i got to get this right. So he drops Timothy off and says, this is what I need you to do. I need you to set up elders in these positions. I need you to set up kind of elders or pastors in these small house churches so that they have some guidance and they have some leadership. So with that, I just went to a leadership conference. So I feel well-equipped. I was there in Chicago in January. We need new leadership. No, no, we were in Chicago in January. We had one beautiful day. My friend's like, wow, this is really nice. And then the rest of them were Chicago days. So... Uh, it w but we're at the conference, and we heard this amazing illustration during one of the keynotes, and I'll share it with you. Is anyone kind of a World War I buff? If you are, you should just go get a drink of water, because I feel like I'm not going to nail this that well. But there's, what was happening is, the, if you know anything about World War I, the, the Germans at the time, were, they had a game plan. They were outnumbered completely by like the French, and they were outnumbered completely by the Russians. And so they had this game plan. This is just in general when you talk about World War I. And their plan was, we're going to be nimble and we're going to be fast. Like that was the, we're going to be quicker in the way that we attack. And because the mobilization takes a long time. So they had this master plan that said, the French take a while to mobilize. We're going to send all our forces there, defeat the French. And then the Russians take even longer because they had like 1.5 active troops. And when they were in battle, it'd be over 3 million. So they had just massive amounts of humans to put at it. So it took them a long time to mobilize. So they had this idea that we're going to defeat the French kind of on the western side, and then we're going to go over to the eastern side, and we're going to, in time, to beat the Russians. So there's a key moment. This is late August, uh, 1914, and there's this Battle of Tannenberg, and I think that's actually an area, not a city. So I, here's, my, here's my lovely picture. Is this plugged in? This is going to be a long day if we can't. Uh, can you hit the slide? Okay, 
I'll plug this in next week. Very clearly, you can see what's going on. So when it says second, the only reason I said that, that <coughs> at least in the blue, you can see the second. So they had two kind of major armies, and this battle was key because the one was led by, I think, Tsar Nicholas, who, who's like the head, head guy, and that would have been army number one, the first army. Then there's the second army, as I understand it. This was the whole second army coming across to attack the Germans, and they had way, way more troops than the Germans, except they, Germans obliterated them. And this is like one of the biggest losses, as I understand it, in up to that point in human history. They're talking about like 100 plus thousand people died. The Germans lost like 13,000. And you can imagine how many the Russians lost plus 90,000 POWs. And so this was like this huge, not, I wouldn't say catastrophic event, but enough that it kind of led to the points of no longer having a czar, as I understand it, in Russia. So it makes sense. This is this illustration I'm hearing. And I was like, wow, that's really good. And then here was the point of the illustration. These two generals talked. And now you're just showing off that you know German. Uh, <coughs> so Ludendorff says to the other guy, Die Russen Soldaten kampfen wie Baron. The Russians, soldiers, fight. Can you guess what Baron is? Like bears. These Russian soldiers fight like bears. And Max Hoffman said, Geweisherr General. It, actually, it shouldn't be, if there's a different word. I think my autocorrect changed that. Abeldos Baron werden von Esslin angeführt. Yes, General. But these bears are led by donkeys. So uh, this was like really good. I thought, wow, that's amazing illustration. What is the point of an illustration like that? Leadership matters, right? So I looked it up and I'm like, before I share it with my people, I got to get the, where I found it from. And I even found it in the book where this is quoted. And then I found another place that basically said, this is not true. <laughs> so I'm tempted to send him a note that says, hey, that was an awesome illustration. P.S. It's not true. Now, the phrase itself, though, is true. This is a common phrase. It, it started way back even before Jesus. They had a phrase that said, it's better to have um, sheep led by a lion than lions led by a sheep. What they're saying is leadership matters. And they actually said this more often about the British. And instead of saying they fight like bears, it says the British would fight like lions. And this is a common phrase, but they're led by, again, donkeys. That's kind of the idea. That leadership matters. I've got a better illustration, though, to help you out. So you've got to use your best observing skills to look at the screen. And I'm going to give you 15 seconds <coughs> to memorize as many things as possible. It did work. That's a made up 15 seconds, so I'm going to go to the next slide. All right. Are you doing that or am I doing that? I'm doing it. Great. Um, how many of you saw jumper cables? Okay, how many of you saw uh, the hooded sweatshirt? Okay. How many of you saw the giant like to go cup? I think that one was probably more obvious. Okay, so we got, let me have another experiment. This time, I want you to look for things that are yellow. I'm not going to give you much time. We're going to go right past that. How many of you saw a smiley face? All right, how many of you saw, what was the other item on there? They had uh, binoculars. All right, how many of you saw the cooler? 
there's only like five yellow items. What are we talking about? Leadership matters because what do leaders primarily do? Like leaders are not telling you what to do, but leaders are helping focus things. And that's exactly what we're talking about. So there's all kinds of things that you could be doing as individuals. There's all kinds of things, even at your work, there's all kinds of things we could do as a church. But in leadership, our job is to focus our church so that we actually, we're all seeing the same things and we're all trying to do the same things. This is especially important when you started a, a brand new church, right? So you can imagine that Timothy is going around or Titus is going around and he's going to start these little tiny churches and to have someone who can focus on the things that is the most important. So he has these very high, he has these very high regard in what he wants the people to do. So here's the list that it has, Titus chapter 1. This is Paul talking to Titus. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now he's got the requirements. An elder must be blameless. And that has the idea. So I'm going to explain some of these as they go just by the Greek. Um, that has the idea that a charge doesn't stick. You can't like make a public accusation. It would stick. So it doesn't mean like you don't make any mistakes. So if you're thinking about your own pastor, there's plenty of mistakes I made. But the idea was if someone publicly said something about me, he does this, it would not stick. And everyone would say that is not true about that individual. Uh, faithful to his wife, the idea is a one-woman man is kind of the idea. A man whose children believe. This is kind of an interesting one because in Timothy has a similar list and that one is not included in it. Why do you think in your mind, just think in your mind, why would that matter? These are brand new churches. These are brand new churches, and you're about to put them in this same thing. Like, like imagine just anything that you're trying to lead a movement at these brand new churches. And it could be like, uh, you know someone that says, I want you to be the leader of recycling. Right? We're just making this up. Recycling is a huge deal. And you say, I want you to be the, sh the face of recycling right now. And then what happens if you go and your family, people are like looking at each other. This is not like a gospel mandate right now, but... Uh, but what would it be like if you go to this person's house and they're the leader of all national recycling and then you find that their family doesn't believe in recycling at all, only that person does? That doesn't really help, right? And so the same thing is true if you're talking about it. It doesn't mean like you're disqualified as a Christian, but it is a big deal that says here is someone whose family also recognizes that this is important. A man whose children must believe and are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. So why would that even matter? So now it's not, a, not only do you have believing kids, but we want your kids to be not wild or disobedient. That's a big deal because why, uh, when you talk about um, people in your life that you look at as leaders, what happens if their kids just do whatever they want? It's hard to listen to that person, right? I think it's just hard to listen to that person. Uh, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, here's some of the negative things, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as, his, as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So we'll just touch on this. The gist of all of this, why, <coughs> excuse me, why would he go through all this effort and why would he have this long list? Because the messenger matters. My guess is just take church out of it. And there's certain messengers, you can't sit and distrust every single information that you ever get. 
So if I talk to, there's certain people that you listen to, I'm guessing that you listen to for like your news. Does everyone, do you turn into a different channel every single day for your news? You've learned to trust that this person is giving me the news, right? This is the kind of idea of Walter Cronkite back in the day that everyone could look and say, I trust Walter Cronkite. But you find your news from something else. Okay, so let's say you're going to find information about, uh, let's make it simple, about an exercise program. You read all these books, but it's exhausting to read all these books. But it's eventually you just kind of want to trust someone to tell you how it is, right? Uh, at work, you work somewhere and you get insider information on what's going on at work. Do you ask every single person that you meet? Or when something's going down in management, you just take someone aside and you're like, hey, what is going on? Because you trust the messenger. And there's something that over time, because it is so exhausting. Now, something, there's a phrase that says, hire slowly, fire fast. Poor Titus has to go in and he has to, to do these things. But basically he's saying, what is the reputation of this person before he sets them in place? And there's something good. If you look at our system, it's kind of a strange system. This is not every church body, and you don't have to do this. There's no mandate on how you pick your pastors. But the way we do it, they say, okay, most of our uh, guys go to school, high school. Then they go to college for four years at the same college. Then they go to four years at the seminary. So we have eight years of school. What is the benefit of eight years of school? There's two. One is you can learn a fair amount of stuff in eight years. That's the idea. What's the other one? You got time to make mistakes. Uh, Amy and I started dating 14 and 15, and this comes up regularly with my daughter. So now my daughters are dating uh, fine young gentlemen, and I like both of them, uh, my daughters and the guys. Uh, so I like both of them. <laughs> so this is our relationship, right? This, this goes all right. But what happens is Amy will tell funny stories when we started dating. I was 14 and 15, right? And there is countless stories about, like, what I got her for a present, like, there's countless stories about like having to ride in the station wagon and with my parents driving, like we're in the back seat and I'm just like, <laughs> and you can imagine, um, Amy looks the exact same age, like 25, that she looked when we started dating. So I look like a 12-year-old boy dating this 25-year-old woman. So this is how awkward this was. And there's also a story, kind of the legendary one, on our first date. So we finally got the courage to ask for her to go to homecoming with me. And... <laughs> I can still picture like the, everything about it and I was so nervous that I was afraid to ask her to dance so instead I played air hockey with my friend at the YMCA for the entire night until the last dance when I stepped it up right I said hey and of course what happens for the last night it's it's probably like a Tesla song or it's like Hotel California that you're like oh this is good this is easy do you ever have that happen to you and then you're like what is happening this song is speeding up but I don't know how to dance and we're awkwardly is that the song that's really awkward to dance to you Stairway to Heaven that is the one sorry <laughs> <laughs> I was so mesmerized I couldn't even remember what song was playing it was just the, uh, um that's the one, Stairway to Heaven, where it sounds awesome. This is the greatest slow dance of all time. And then it's 28 minutes long. And like it has this, you, this is the movement. There's not actual dancing by the end. So, so she tells these stories to my daughters, which I thought would be endearing, right? Like my dad is great and stuff like that. They make fun of me to no end about what a lousy boyfriend I am and how that, I didn't get it. And I'm like, listen, there was no internet and there was no like romance movies to watch to understand what I'm supposed to do. And my wife defends me and says, your dad is a good husband now. What, what am I getting at? That an 18-year-old boy 
when you go to school, and I think that's part of the benefit of our system, an 18-year-old boy who says, I'm thinking about being a pastor, really has four, eight years to screw up. And this is the way I would look at it. You have four to eight years, not just to make mistakes and get them out of your system, but this sense that says, if I'm taking this seriously, that people will see that this is who I am as an individual. And you can have anything like that. You can have someone who just impulsively says, this is what I, I want to be a pastor. And what Timothy is, or what Titus, I'm going to mix him up, sorry. What he's trying to figure out is, what is the reputation of this person? Because there's that phrase, right? Hire slowly, fire fast. And what he's saying, like, let's just make sure, because ultimately the messenger matters. So think, I want to explain the situation he's getting these guys ready to put in. So of all these attributes... Which one is the most important? If I go backwards, then I'll go forwards. I'll, I'll read them off if you can't. Uh, you're blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient, uh, again blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. He must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message at his, as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Is there any of those that you could take away? You know, our society, our society looks at things differently. And I think there's certain things that someone could struggle. I, I think one, I'm not given to anger. I, I'd said in our society, if I told you a story, for example, of driving... And I said how angry I got, and I got road rage because of the person who cut me off. And I could tell you stories like that. <laughs> um, would that say, you know what, you shouldn't be a pastor anymore? The time where, like, I'm driving on the highway, and I saw this guy quick hit the brakes, and I thought, like, something was wrong, so I hit the brakes. And really, he was trying to go into my lane to go off, and he gave me double middle fingers all the way down the exit ramp. And the time I seriously was considering going down the on-ramp to go take care of this guy. Like, this, this was going through my head, like, in, like blood was going into my head. But when I tell that story, everyone's like, yeah, okay, it's a good thing you don't have a machine gun in the front of your car, that's good. So, but would you say, you know what, I don't think you should be a pastor because you got mad? I don't think so, right? What happens if I was at a party, and we're hanging out, and it's really fun, and I have um, too many whiskeys, right? I had one too many, I'm like, whoa, this is too many, I gotta call someone to give me a ride home. My guess is, you'd be more proud that I said I can't drive than that angry because I had too much whiskey. Some of these things matter in our society, and that's going to give and take, but God says all of these things matter. They matter because my message matters. There's only one, I think, for sure, 100%, um, and, and we would say that you could never, ever take away Number nine, you must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. It does not matter how nice someone is. It doesn't matter how holy they are. It doesn't matter if they never touch a drink in their whole life. And it doesn't matter how hospitable they are. If they don't trust in God's word, my job would be useless. When you are dying or when your friend is hurt or when you're in the hospital, if I came and just said, wow, you should come stay at my house and I'll give you some meal. And you'd be like, wow, he's so hospitable. I don't think you care. What you want to hear is a simple message that said, Pastor, tell me again that it's true. And I can say it is absolutely true that God really did come and God really does love you. And God, no matter what is going on, that God's got a bigger plan and I don't understand it. And that through Christ, that God looks at us with holiness. 
And when you're dying, you want me to hold your hand and not tell you about how I don't drink. I think you want to hear about Jesus. And so that's what he's saying. Like, the message ultimately matters. But as a pastor and as a person, you can screw it up. And so he's stepping in and he wants them to go and be pastors to these little house churches. But we've got to take a moment here to look about the society of, that, that Paul is getting them ready to go uh, into. For there are many rebellious people, he's talking about where they live on the island of Crete, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. So what had happened is leaders had stepped up into these churches because there was a vacuum, right? There's a void, and they had stepped up, and these are not godly men. They must be silenced, he's saying about these people, because they are disrupting whole households. Now just imagine whole families by the teaching what they ought not to teach. For the sake of what reason they want cash. One of Crete's own prophets had said it this way. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Under God, Paul says, you know what, that's true in this case. Therefore, rebuke them so that they may be sound in faith and pay no attention to Jewish myths or merely human commands of those who reject the truth. What is he saying? Like Paul is saying to Titus, I'm asking you to put men in these positions, and it's not something as easy. You're going to go into a situation and you're going to go into a society that has no interest in knowing what the truth is. Does it sound a little familiar? Like when you look around, when I go to the store, when I read the news and I hear what's going on, I don't think to myself, wow, everyone believes what God believes and everyone believes that these things are true. Instead, I think we're more and more disjointed. We divide things into black and white or Democrat and Republican. We divide it into man and woman. And we divide it into this idea of sexuality. And we divide it over here and what we talk about the history of the world and the way that we look at money is all contrary in many ways, the way that God talks about things. And God is saying, I want my ministers to go into something just like that. A lot of people say that. I remember a pastor um, when I was in seminary, and this was a word, I've shared this with you before, but he said these words. Um, I'm so glad that I'm not going to be a pastor now. And I never got it, right? Like, and I'm, what, 24 years old at the time. I'm like, I was onward Christian soldiers, and I was ready to, like, go take on the world and change the whole thing. But now that I am 43, and, and I think about my son, what happens if he thinks about being a pastor? I think I would say the same words silently. I can't imagine, when I've seen how fast the world has changed, I can't imagine just now starting my ministry when there is no sense of truth. We live in a nation that is post-Christian where the views of God's word are not even ignored, but I mean, just people are indifferent. So maybe what you're thinking is, wow, pastor's trying to get us to feel sorry for him. Uh, uh, you know, I'll pray for you, pastor. It's really difficult as you handle these Jesus things. There's something the Bible says, though, that's a little bit different. I'm going to jump sections. 2 Corinthians, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What is he saying? He's saying not only is it me to handle the, the Jesus thing, right? It's not my job to raise your kids in the Lord. That's part of my job. It's not my job to talk to your spouse about Jesus and encourage them. God is saying, like, you are the ambassador. You are God's representatives in the world that you step into. And we've said this before, but I think there, who is better positioned? I think we phrase it this way. Who is better positioned to show Christ's love to your kids if you have kids than you? Who is better positioned to show Christ's love to your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend than you? 
who is better positioned to articulate in your workplace by how you act and what you talk about than you to show Christ's love. The world is like flying by. And I think that if you want to talk about a letter that totally applies to us, it's the book of Titus. He's setting up pastors, but I think in the same sense, God says that's what you are doing in this world. Why does it matter? Uh, 1921, got a picture. 1921, this was in Toronto that they were struggling with diabetes. I'm going to show you another picture. This is actually, I I believe, the ward. I did some searching for this. Uh, Here's a young girl. Can you see? Very gaunt, if you can see the picture. Uh, Before insulin. So before 1921, they did not have insulin. All these kids were going into comatose, what was happening, and their bodies were shutting down. They're losing weight. And um, suddenly, the way they describe it is these three doctors went from bed to bed to bed, and instead of utter silence, they started to hear the kids talk, and they started to see the kids move, and they even started to hear kids laugh, because up until that time, insulin, they had done experiments with dogs and things like this, but for the first time, they said, we're going to put this in a human being. And here's after, I think, four months, what had happened. All these kids that were dying had finally found the thing that solves things. I'm not the only ambassador that Christ has had, and I think in a lot of ways not nearly as capable of all as you. The main point that God is saying is not, I want you to have a perfect life and then you share faith. That is a big, big deal, right? The messenger matters, and we've all made mistakes, but I think one of the things that we can say is, hey, I've made mistakes. I've I've been where you're at, but I want to tell you something that is the healing power of God. These words have a purpose. When John talks about it, this is the words that he says. These words are written when he talks about the gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. My friends, when we read Titus, don't just think about that's a pastoral book, but this is God's word to me, God's word to you to say, I'm stepping out into this world that doesn't believe what God says to share the only thing that can save lives. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're so humbled when we see the list of expectations, and so often we've we've failed, so often uh, we wonder, is our reputation that good? Is our reputation one that could stick? And we, we worry about these outside things, but sometimes we get distracted. We get distracted from recognizing that you've put people in our lives, and maybe it's our mistake that is a bridge that allows us to talk to someone. Maybe it's our past failures with alcohol or our past failures with drugs or past failures with all kinds of things that it gives us a window to be able to talk to someone to where they're at so they know that we can experience what they've experienced, but we also can share something that utterly transforms lives, that transforms hearts, which is that your forgiveness comes for all people through Christ. And this is not just some vague hope, but it's a true hope and a God who never lies and a Savior who never failed. We ask this in your name. Amen.